Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Good Time Show. My name is Arti and this is Freedom. We started the Good Time Show about a year ago and now we're doing it on YouTube as well as an audio podcast and we like to do this show because we cover topics around technology, techno optimism, building things, creation and we've had guests from the world of technology, fashion, uh, entertainment, uh, sports and it's just been incredibly diverse and incredibly special for us to go learn from all of these p- people building really incredible things and uh, this is the second time we're doing it on youtube and we had some great guests for this episode shriram who did we have well usually our show is very lighthearted but the number one topic on pretty much everyone's mind in the world of technology is the state of the market the prices are down valuations are down there are layoffs in the air and it seems doom and gloom or is it and so we went and got some of the best people we thought could help explain and tell us what is going on and we have some very special guests we have well known investor elard gill my friend and partner at andreessen horowitz david george and well known founder in the world of crypto dan romero along along with our usual guests mark andreessen and steven sinoski and we got into everything we got into how startup founders should act we got into what this means long term for the technology industry we got into how this these cycles have played before in the world of crypto we just really really got into it and there's some amazing stories and some amazing emotional moments and we had a blast and we had you know and everyone listening enjoyed it and we hope you enjoyed it too yes enjoy live from san francisco It's the Good Time Show. And now your hosts, Arti and Sriram. Trying to pull together some of the best people yep. that we know of yep. uh, in the world of venture, in the world of crypto to talk to us about everything that's been going on. These are people all of you know and deeply respect and we are thrilled that they took time out on Sunday evening to join us today. So with that, Arti, who do we have on the show? Uh let's go around the room. First we have Elad is a long-time angel investor, is a good friend and you know we were talking about who's probably the best person from an investor standpoint who could like really chime in and talk to us about both you know what's happening in the current market landscape but also in the world of crypto. So we thought Elad would be a really good fit here. Welcome Elad. Thanks for coming on the show. And and sure. then we have we have David George who heads up the late stage and growth investing at A16Z. and uh, you know david wrote this really awesome post this week just covering a very timely too covering the exact same topic so we thought he would be a really good person to also come in here on our show welcome david welcome to the show i have to say by the way david might also be the one of the snappiest dressers at a16z may not be evident by what he's wearing right now just <laughs> feedback but if he dresses very well then we have uh, dan romero uh, who's a long time exec at coinbase and now he works on farcaster and you know you're we're going to talk a lot about crypto this this eventful week that we've seen but just you know dance like we've known him for a while now and I'm really excited to have him here on video because he's shown up before the audio versions of the show itself so welcome dan welcome to the show and uh, of course we have mark andreessen and steven sanofsky who you know were there in the first episode if you haven't seen it you should go back and see the first episode and they need no introduction i'm just really excited to have them here again for episode 2 So welcome folks. There we go. Look at Mark. Mark <laughs> and Steven. Uh Mark, Mark, do you have what are you drinking? Well, tonight's whiskey of choice. This is you'll have to tell me how this is pronounced. How do you pronounce A M R U T in Indian? Um, Amrut. Amrut. Uh this, Amrut. this is this is from India, isn't it if I'm correct? 
This is Indian. This is Indian whiskey. This is Indian whiskey made from barley, just like scotch. This is from India. This is one of the best, the best, one of the best distilleries in the world. And this particular bottling is a combination of peated and rum finished. And it is a flavor explosion. I highly recommend. That's awesome. <laughs> you, you know, like if, you, if you're not familiar, Amrit actually means the nectar of the gods, nectar of the heavens. Uh, so, oh, uh, wow. Oh, there we go. I love it. Okay. Uh, whiskey, whiskey, whiskey is Irish for the for the water of life, and so now we have the water of the life, the nectar of the gods. Awesome. <laughs> well, at least I wouldn't have to Google this because last time you said something, and I had to like figure out what that whiskey was. So this makes it a lot easier for me for the transcripts. There you go. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Okay, let's get into it. Question for you: You know, we've had this crazy eventful last few days, you probably have, are talking to founders, giving them advice at different stages even. What advice are you generally talking to or what have the conversations been like through the course of the last week to two weeks or so as you talk to founders from C, Series A, Series B, any stage that you're talking to? Sure, yeah, no, so I'm basically getting two or three calls uh, a day right now in terms of people okay. who are wondering about the funding environment, what should they do? How should they think about their startup? And it feels a little bit karmic to me because I remember in um, 2008, I was running a startup and we were five or six people and I was, I was running a Sequoia-backed company and I, was, and I was invited to the Rest in Peace Good Time Sequoia presentation. And at the time, Sequoia had this big doom and gloom statement about what was going to happen and tech just took off from that point on. And I think part of that was they just lived through the dot-com collapse. And so everybody was kind of primed to react really strongly to any sort of shift in the macro environment. It feels like this time that statement is actually uh, potentially correct in that we've gone through a very distorted period between money printing, low interest rates, COVID-related stimulus, and other factors. And now we're kind of paying the piper. It feels like a lot of things in the macro economy are starting to catch up. And in particular, we have what appears to be um, some form of an inflationary environment. And so interest rates are going up. And anytime interest rates go up, anything that you have as future cash starts to get discounted at a heavier rate. In other words, if you have a growth stock, you're expecting that growth stock to eventually pay out a lot of money later, but you're investing a lot of money to grow it now. And because that cash flow is so far in the future, it gets more and more expensive from an opportunity cost or money perspective. And so valuations come down for those types of stocks in particular. And so we've had a huge public market correction where things in some cases have come down 50 to 90% in terms of a variety of stocks and a lot of the multiples or comparables that would be used to assess a technology startup that's private have come down dramatically. And so valuations across the board and technology have come down. A lot of money appears like it's going to start drying up and that's hedge funds that have lost huge amounts of money on public stocks that they were holding can no longer invest in privates. It's people investing on such a large pace that the billion dollars that somebody raised a year ago is all gone in terms mm. of the venture capital funds. And so it does seem we're about to enter an environment where a lot of different things are going to shift uh, pretty drastically from a funding environment and therefore how companies should act perspective. Mm. So let's maybe break this down. So we want to spend the rest of the night digging into each of this in detail. And, you know, maybe one place to start breaking this down is maybe cut it out by stage. So, you know, I, I think we're kind of all familiar with kind of the correction of the public markets and how there's maybe impact on day-stage valuations. And we're going to get deeper into that. What are you seeing on the C, Series A market right now? Yeah, I mean, the best advice um, for a seed company hasn't changed, which is basically try to find product market fit and literally nothing else matters. 
except for maybe, you know, don't fight with your co-founder. Those are sort of the two things that you have to avoid as an early, that you have to do as an early stage company. And so the advice that I actually got in 2008 from Sequoia was your five or six people, don't worry about it. Just focus on building a great company in a unique, economic, positive way. And that's true for any seed company today. Your expectations in terms of round dynamics should should uh, modify, right? You should expect that it'll take longer to raise money, or at least eventually. I mean, seed stages haven't been impacted quite that much yet, but it's coming. And that your valuation won't be as high as it would have been six months ago. But six months ago was right. all-time highs in terms of seed valuations. If you're a Series A company, you have to start thinking about your Series B. And that means you have to start thinking about how much revenue you're actually going to have and what your growth rate will be. And then whether or not you'll have good characteristics in terms of cohort expansion, your net burn as a company and your burn multiple and other other characteristics that people will try to determine the degree to which you're going to um, get that next round. I think where it gets really tricky or dangerous right now is probably around the B or C round outside of growth, which is to your point correct mm-hmm. strongly, because a lot of people raised a billion dollar round with $10 million in revenue. And if you look at public comparables, you need something like 100 to $150 million in revenue to support a billion dollars in market cap, at least for today's public companies growing at 20 to 40%. Mm-hmm. And so that really means that the bar has gone up dramatically in terms of what a, what a unicorn valuation means. And so it's, it's quite likely that, you know, a third of the unicorns or half the unicorns are going to really have to be um, focused on cash management to grow into that valuation over the next two, three years. And, and I think, so I think one interesting you know, phenomenon here is, you know, a lot of founders haven't lived through 2008, or definitely not 2001. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and this might be a little bit of correction in terms of both valuation, but also kind of maybe the speed at which maybe you're able to raise a seed or a series A. I've been having conversations with other VCs, you know, kind of different industries, different firms where, you know, we may not actually see the one or two day, you know, uh, time to getting a term sheet, but you might actually take like some period of time and a lot more process. So, mm-hmm. Does this remind you, I, I'm guessing, like, what are you telling founders, you know, when they're out to raise a seed round, when they're out to raise a series A, who may not run this market? Like, what are you telling them? Like, hey, things might be a little bit different now and you have to acknowledge what's happening. Yeah, the, the biggest reset really seems to be on valuations. You know, people were used to an environment where individuals were willing to, willing to pay 18, 24, 36 months ahead of what was already considered a very high multiple. Right. And so people projected into the future on very little data and gave huge rounds. And then to your uh, point as well, what used to be before 2019, you know, rounds would take 12 to 18 months to fundraise. That is to me, rounds would be raised every eight to 12 months and they take three, four months to raise. And that timeline really collapsed where people were raising rounds every three to six months for the best companies with no new incremental information. And so people in some cases would do three rounds of financings in a year. They'd do a seed round and then they'd have a preemptive A, you know, a month later. And then six months later, they'd have a preemptive B with very little data. And so the positive for those companies is that they're able to last a very long time right now because they didn't necessarily ramp up their teams as much. The negative is they may not have product market fit and they may effectively be stuck. And in parallel, I think one of the distortive effects of that last environment was that every round, founders would take out secondary. They would sell stock themselves. Is part yeah. of me. Yeah, maybe, for maybe folks who are not familiar with VC terms, could you explain what, what secondary, secondary means? Sure, yeah. It's basically when you start a company, the company is wholly owned by the founders. And then they start giving mm-hmm. stock to employees and then investors buy a piece of the stock of the company. Usually when you raise money in a VC round for an early round, you are only giving money to the company. The company is directly taking the money in and that's called primary. There may be circumstances where a founder or early employees or other people 
may sell some stock as part of a financing and they get money directly instead of the company. And so one of the things that really shifted is usually you'd wait until a company is worth half a billion, a billion dollars, and was sort of fairly working before you'd sell secondary stock. And it was a way to basically incentivize the founders to stick with the company. Because if it took 10 years to go public and you wanted to buy a house, it made sense to be able to take out some money to be able to do that or to you know pay for your kids' schooling or whatever it is that you're trying to support, medical expenses in some cases. And then what happened during this last environment is really early companies that have been around for six months, 12 months, 18 months, had founders that were taking out very large amounts of money directly. And that meant that you had a very strong incentive financially to raise the next round very quickly at an even higher valuation and take more money out. Now, most people didn't do this in a malicious way. And it was just part of, you know, a, a new view in terms of what progress for a company meant. But there are some companies which I think now the incentives are really stuck because a founder may have made a lot of money. The company itself may not quite be working. And the question is, what do you do with it? Can you sell it? Are you stuck holding the bag? That's sort of an employee base and a founder base. And so I think a lot more companies raised very rapidly in part due to that dynamic, although it wasn't always that um, explicit. Got, got it. Okay, so I want to bring, uh, you know, David in. So David, you know, out, you know, outside of being a snappy, is exactly one of my closest friends at the Forum Management Venture. And David, you know, you had a late stage investing, right? Like, could you maybe explain for folks who are not familiar with VC terms, like what that means? And what is it that you do here at A16Z exactly? Yeah. So yeah, late stage investing for us is basically, you know, investing in companies after they've found product market fit, but before they become public companies. And so one of the big trends in the technology market over the last 10 years has been companies staying private longer. And as a result of that, we raised a dedicated growth fund about three and a half years ago um, to invest in those companies, which is a very different exercise and different muscle and different way of engaging in a lot of ways than, you know, seed or series A. So, so that is, I guess that's what I do here at Shriram. Well, yeah, okay. Well, that's, you bring a lot of color to the firm. You bring a lot of character to the firm, but Okay, so I think the way I, one of the reasons I wanted David here is, you know, by the very nature of his job, he's probably, you know, dealing, he's actually dealing with all of these companies which have raised multiple rounds of funding and actually having a bunch of these conversations with founders, some of whom, you know, we might have invested in, some of whom might be in investing and really, really exposed to this space. And this week, David and, you know, working with somebody else in the firm wrote this amazing blog post, which, you know, we should try and like pull up over here, kind of talking about, I would say the state how to think about a down market and, and maybe David, like walk us through maybe what you would like to talk about. Yeah, for sure. So Elad and I talk about this stuff all the time and he covered, he covered a bunch of it already, but like maybe just to help set the stage uh, a little bit more. So, you know, Elad mentioned that, you know, the highest growth stocks are the ones that have been greatest impacted, you know, in the public markets, you can break it down into sort of three big buckets, you know, enterprise software, consumer internet, and fintech. And the enterprise software group is down roughly 60 to 65% off of where they were if you go back to like November of 2021. And so if you take the universe of SaaS companies in the public markets, you know, there's now almost 100 of that equates to basically a trillion dollars of market cap going away since since November. And the highest flying recent IPO of, of any of these companies was Snowflake. And Snowflake's trading multiple, revenue multiple, the way it's valued, I think I saw this down, down over 70%. And, you know, among the highest growing companies like Snowflake, you know, that that universe of companies kind of down 80%. So enterprise software is 60, 65% off off the highs. Consumer internet is like 70%. 
off of their highs. And then fintech uh, has been hit the hardest. It's like 80%. I cover biotech a little less, although we have a big, a big bio and health practice at our firm. And that looks like this too. I mean, 70, 80% or more off. And the crazy thing is, I mean, this is like simple math. So, you know, <laughs> bear with me, but like when you're down 80%, even if you go up another 50% after you go down 80%, you know, you're still 70% off your overall high, right? So that's why the magnitude of this is is so is so severe. And even with rebalance, like, you know, in the last couple of days of, of the week, there were some of the growth stocks that appear to be, you know, sort of public market investor short covering with, you know, stocks going up 15, 20, 25 percent. It still barely makes even a little dent in the in the impact of how far you've you've fallen before. So anyway, that's that's the sort of magnitude. And that's how we're talking to our founders about it. It's like, hey, look, like, you know, it, it, it was great that we did what we did in 2021 that we raised and that you were able to get capital from lots of different places. But, you know, this is a 60 to 80 percent, 60 to 80 percent correction. Wow. Even in the largest trillion dollar market cap companies, like all of a sudden, what was, I don't know, like six months ago was effectively a bond. If you look at some of the companies now, all of a sudden people are valuing their their revenue very low. So what what goes into that psychology, because something like Snowflake, there's the ARR multiple, but then all of a sudden you you get people screaming, well, what about profit or net free cash flow? And and it's like the rug got pulled out from under them. And how does that trickle down to the, you know, the series D and E company? Yeah, it's a, look, it's a great question, Stephen. I, like the goalposts have changed and they changed like mm-hmm. really fast. So yeah. it used to be in the private markets and in the public markets, you know, folks, paid much more of a premium for the amount of growth that you had as opposed to the efficiency with which you're growing, right? And so, you know, I can't tell you how many hedge fund people I've talked to over the last three months, they, they all have said the same thing. They're like, oh, I just want to buy the stuff that that has real cash flow because at least I can then make sense of the valuation. And so in the case of Snowflake, you know, it's corrected. It still trades for 25 times uh, revenue. And I think they have like 10% cash flow margins, and, you, you know, there's no like cash flow multiple that you trade for. And, and that's made people feel pretty skittish. A couple of companies have come out in their quarterly earnings and sort of reiterated that they're going to continue to invest in growth and not focus on, on profitability as much. And like the public markets do not like that right now. So it's very much an orientation back towards cash flow now as opposed to growth. And the same thing holds the private markets. And you can see it in the impact of public stocks, right? Like the ones who have held up the most are the big companies that have a lot of cash flow, like, you know, ServiceNow and Adobe and, you know, ones that have held up a little bit better are companies that have cash flow like CrowdStrike or Atlassian or Datadog. And then the ones without cash flow, it's been, it's been, you know, the greatest severity of them. So one of the things I'm curious about is, you know, we... In a lot of the conversation about this last week, and I was watching a lot of podcasts, you know, the All In podcast are fantastic content on it. I think David yeah. Sachs had this great presentation that he was doing to crap. What a great content on this. And uh, a lot of people talk about the numbers, but I'm also kind of interested in how are founders reacting. And, and maybe, you know, like uh, David and Eli, like a lot of the founders that I think you speak to, you know, they haven't seen a market like this. Mm-hmm. So what is maybe the emotional reaction? What is how are they processing it? What has been more surprising or more challenging for them? Because they haven't maybe seen a world like this before. Yeah, yeah. I just think um, people haven't really adjusted to what is likely a new world. And again, it's, it's very hard to make these macro predictions in terms of what's going to truly stick. But the most likely scenario is that we continue to have some interest rate hikes over the course of the year. 
And it's, there's some, there's some world where multiples come down even further and we still haven't seen companies really blow up and go under at any scale. Uh, we haven't seen the down rounds. We actually haven't seen any real carnage yet. We haven't seen the layoffs at scale. You know, the things that tend yeah. to happen when money really dries up. And so I think a lot of people are either uncertain or they're in denial. And which of those right. you choose depends on what you think the future really holds. So a lot of people will go out with round valuation expectations for series B, series C, and then you know, a month later, they'll go back to the same investors and say, hey, we'll do it at half the price. And those same investors just don't want to get involved because they, you know, they view it as kind of failed fundraise or there may be some employee dynamics where people are still raising very aggressively instead of looking things like, like their burn multiple, just how much revenue you generating dollars that you burn effectively. And they're, they're not necessarily tracking metrics that give them a real view of health of their business in a way that's really relevant to the shifting world. And so I think people are still adapting, particularly in the mid stage and early stages. And I do. The only, yeah, this is, this is the reason that we wrote the piece that we wrote that just, just yeah. call from the growth team and I wrote the piece is like to make it like, it's just a diagnostics framework, right? It's like a starting point because a lot to your point, like if you just try and go out and, and raise the same way and, as you did in 2021, it'll be hard. So we basically said, Hey, look, like it may seem a little abstract to you to say like 60 to 80% correction. Like, what does that mean to me? You know, one way to do it is basically say, okay, I raised at, you know, $2 billion last year and it was a hundred times RRR. And if, yeah. you know, there's a 60 to 80% correction, that basically means I may need to 4X in order to grow into my last round value. Mm -hmm. And so at least starting to, you know, put those kinds of scenarios on a page and try to plan your cash runway and see if there's other places where you can get cash to buy you time to get you to that point was, was the purpose of it. And then, you know, a lot mentioned the, the burn multiple piece, you know, we benchmarked, I think like 70 data points or something of companies that we looked at and tried to segment it out by stage of company, you know, zero to 10, 10 to 25, 25, 75 and 75 or more, just so founders can look at that table and say, look, how am I actually doing, you know, and how do I compare to the, to the market on that? So, you know, at least those are a starting point for planning. Right. Okay. All right, I want to switch gears just a little bit. I want to go to Enum, and a lot of people have been like, you know, waiting to kind of get Mark time. I think Mark has been taking swigs. And so, Mark, I think one perspective which a lot of people are curious about is the perspective of the VC. And you obviously happen with Vision, where you know you run a firm yourself. You talk to a lot of folks in the industry. So, what is what is maybe the tone of conversations that you are seeing? And maybe if people ask, "Hey, how are VC firms now thinking about this?" And of course, they all come in different shapes and sizes. You know. What is the mindset at a typical VC firm right now? Yeah, so the thing that I think is important for people to understand is that like <laughs> there's whenever there's sort of a macroeconomic shock and then venture capitalists change their behavior, right? There's an immediate critique, which is like, well, why on earth would VCs change their behavior, right? In response to a stock market change, like VCs are investing in a company, you know, today with the idea that it might go public, you know, but sometime between, you know, five to 10 years and so, right, what, what possible relevance um, could, you know, wh whatever the stock market is doing today, what possible relevance could it have on, on what happens five or 10 years from now? And, and so shouldn't basically VCs just keep doing the same thing? And I think the thing that's important to understand, you know, consistent with what our, our other guests have been talking about is basically, you know, the, the, the whole the whole investment landscape is a food chain, right? And so when a venture capital firm invests in a Series A, it's, it's right, what's, what's the big risk to the VC that invests in the Series A is if the company won't be able to raise a Series B? 
right? What's the big risk of investing in Series B? It's that the company won't be able to raise a Series C. What's the big risk for Series C? It's that the company won't be able to raise a D and so forth and so on. And then ultimately, maybe the company can't go public. And so basically, as a VC, there is this kind of, you know, it's like looking through the, I don't know, reverse end of a telescope or something like, there is this thing where you have to have some sense that the investments you're making now are going to be actually viable in whatever the unfolding, you know, kind of economic environment is. And specifically, that they're going to be able to next round, right? And, right, that they're going to be able to raise the next round at a premium to the post-money valuation that you put on the current round, right? Which is, which is right, the, the, you know, the, the price is really important here, right? To, if I fund a Series A, right, in 2004, a Series A valuation was 9 pre, right? And so if I fund a Series A at 9 pre, you know, it's a typical like Series A in 2004 was like 3 million in on 9 pre, with 12 post, right? And so if I'm investing, you know, at a Series A at a $9 million pre-money, $12 million post-money valuation, the odds that that company is going to be willing to able to raise at 20 or 30 posts, right, for their Series B is, you know, probably pretty good. I don't know about you guys. I can't remember the last time a startup raised a Series A at nine at, at 12 posts. I know. I was going to say, I was like, which year are you talking about? Because that, that hasn't been a typical round in the last year, at least. Many years. Exactly. Many years. Well, the more typical Series A in the last 12 months was like 120 posts, right? You know, it, it sort of, it sort of, you know, it, it, it sort of crept way up over, over the last couple of decades. And yeah. so, you know, and basically founders got used to being able to raise these, you know, turbocharged rounds with these super high prices very quickly. Yeah. But then the consequence is, right, if you're raising it, you know, 120 posts or 80 posts or 60 posts, you know, there has to be somebody else out there who's going to write a check at 150 posts or 200 posts that person is going to look forward to what happens after that, right? And so, so it's this, it's this like, it's, it's this Domino's kind of cascade thing. And then by the way, along with that, it's just, you know, the, your, your, your previous, you know, guys talked about this, but you know, it is this thing of like, okay, like do these rounds happen super fast? You know, do the term sheets get sent over with like, you know, the number, the numbers filled in, <laughs> right? Like a lot of the sort of exuberant behavior that kind of, it, a lot of the exuberant behavior of the last few years assumed that it was sort of infinitely easy to raise infinite amounts of money at infinitely high valuations down the road. Um, and to the extent that that assumption is changing, which, you know, it, it, at least right now it is changing, yeah. you know, then that ripples all the way back. And so that, that's the thing. Now, having said that, from the standpoint of venture capital, of course, the risk is that you pull back during the down market. Or, you know, the risk is now, you know, the, the risk is like maybe now is exactly the time to really focus on venture and especially early stage venture, you know, seeds and series A's because this, you know, th this is an environment in which a lot of people are not going to be willing to start companies. A lot of people are not going to want to leave their jobs to start companies. A lot of VCs, a lot of your other VC competitors might pull back. And so there, there is danger in not being in market. And at least, you know, sp speaking for our firm, you know, we continue to be in market. We continue to be in business. We'll, you know, we will continue to do rounds. We'll, we'll continue to make investments, you know, but, but if this down, if, if, if this downturn in price and economic activity continues, then, you know, prices will definitely reset. And, and I think it's fair to say, I'd be curious what the, what our fellow panelists think, but I, I think it's fair to say. There's two kinds of private tech rounds happening right now, at least that I can see. Um, mm -hmm. There's the ones happening at the old prices, which, you know, it's like people are either still enthusiastic or they're rounds that were already like almost done by the time things change or they're rounds that aren't happening. What isn't happening yet, or at least what I haven't seen yet is rounds happening at the new prices, which, which seems like it's, it's the next thing that will, the next card that will turn over. Got it. Wow. Okay. I'm curious, like Eli, like what are you seeing? I think there's kind of a theory that there is no maybe like drop in valuations is maybe either your round gets done or it doesn't. It doesn't. I think it's a really mixed bag and it depends on the stage. I think for later stage growth rounds, you're definitely seeing certain things not get done or certain things even getting repriced in some cases by the founders where they'll go back mm -hmm. and say, hey, I actually don't feel comfortable with this valuation. I don't think I can exceed it based on the money I'm going to get. And so I'm going to actually reduce valuation. And I think that's really wise to do right now. I think the mid-stage yeah. rounds are really split to Mark's point, some are white hot, some are not. And then I think the seeds are largely still happening. 
The only retrenchment I've seen on the seed side was a really high priced crypto seed, which was supposed to be $5 million at 50. And the founder just emailed um, me saying, hey, I'm actually going to reset everything and we're going to go at 20. And, you know, he, he similarly decided to do that. But that's the first time I've seen that on the earlier side. And so I think the parts of the early side market are starting to catch up. Parts are still quite exuberant. And, you know, I, I, I anticipate that it'll take a little bit more time for all this stuff to cascade through. I, I think a lot of people still haven't seen their peers fail at fundraising or really under, have heard that these things are happening in a bad way. And it's going to take some time for all that to if, if I can yeah. add to that, if I can add to that. So, you know, the last few years have been characterized by a, let's say, a fair amount of, let's say, various terms, aggressive marketing on the part of startups raising money, a jockeying for position. Maybe we would say bluffing. Maybe some people would say lying. Some people would say even worse things, you know, in the sense that, you know, basically what every VC and late stage investor has heard for the last few years is every deal, right? Every deal's white hot. Every deal has multiple term sheets from other firms. Every deal's, right, just about to close some high price thing. Right. Every deal has this, every deal has that. And so it's, it's, and it's basically been this thing where there's an entire generation of founders who basically have been trained to generate FOMO, right? If you're missing on the part of investors. And, and so, and, and it's actually really funny because they all do the exact same thing. They're like, well, the, the classic, the classic lie of the last five years has been, well, we weren't going to raise money, but right. You know, we got an inbound term sheet at precisely the time we need money, by the way. So, you know, <laughs> what, and, and, and it's funny because all these founders, you know, the founders don't realize, right. It's one of these collective action things. The founders, each individual founder doesn't realize that all the other founders have gotten the same advice. So they all yeah. show up with like the same, the same BS line to try to, to, yeah. try to generate. From, you know, we shall remain unnamed. This person accidentally screen shared, quote unquote, their calendar, which just accidentally had back to back meetings with pretty much all the top venture capital firms. And they were like, oh, oops, I didn't mean to show that. And yeah, I, I somehow don't see that happening. I had friends who did that 15 years ago. So that's a, that's a very old tactic. Joe, that was like the Google data room that all the, everybody else can see who else is there. That, that, that oh, wouldn't happen to well, if it's a perfect consumer app, it's the early preview access in which all of the other users are all the other VCs. Yep. Right. And so, <laughs> so basically it was, it was a whole world of sort of, of advice, this whole ecosystem of advice formed and generating FOMO. And I, I did a little Googling right before the show. There are yeah. several nominations for the opposite of FOMO, but my favorite, my favorite one is JOMO, J-O-M-O, which is joy of missing out. And so, <laughs> right. So to the extent that we're undergoing a shift from FOMO to JOMO, it's just, it's going to get a lot harder for a lot of people to sort of run these plays, right? Cause, because the, the assumption is going to go from, oh, every deal's hot and every deal has multiple term sheets to, oh, no deal is hot. No deal has term sheets. Nothing is getting done. The prices haven't reset yet. Everybody's retrenching. Everybody's looking to support their, you know, their, 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 their companies are already invested in. They're, they're you know, they're husbanding capital for, to, to support their, their existing companies. And so it, it, if this really is as big of a shift, it's going to be a shift at Jumbo. And, and then in that case, just, you know, even when rounds happen, number one, they'll happen at much lower prices, but also they're just going to take a lot, right? There's, there's going to be a lot more, and, you know, old, older, the older, People on the call will remember, like, you know, 15 years ago, you know, you as a VC, you had a long time to look at a deal, right? You, 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 you could often be looking and kicking the tires for months. And, 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 and not that that's good. I'm not saying that that's necessarily the environment you want. But yeah. when, when you really go to the other side of this, you know, the, 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 the power balance really shifts, the, the tactics shift, the, the, the way the deals get negotiated shifts. And so I would, yeah, as, a, as an entrepreneur, let's put it this way. If you have a high price round that is in the pipe right now that you can get closed, like close it, right? Because it, it, it is likely that over the course of the next several months, the, the behavior on the part of the VCs will, will change quite a bit. One of the things that I, like speaking of older people, one of the things that I keep hearing that I find pretty interesting is <laughs> just this desire 
what did I, am I already being made fun of? Well, I, I was going to make a joke about the older people thing, but you went there yourself. So just keep going. Keep going. I don't have to go through the haircut problem, but the, the, the thing that I keep hearing is, is this desire to sort of have as a coping mechanism, the, well, let me tell you, I've been through 2008 and I've been through the dot-com bubble. And so let me tell you how this is going to play out and how what we're dealing with now is so analogous to the past. And I, I have to admit, I think that that's just super weird because I, I, don't, I mean, maybe everybody else has an idea of why it's like 2001 or something, but nothing feels yeah. at all the but same. I, you mentioned this before. Why is it not okay to compare against, say, 2001 or 2008? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not a macroeconomist, but I can probably make stuff up as good as a lot of them, which is just that it's, you know, we have a whole set of different system systems going on now. Like we have a war and we have shortages and we have a supply chain. We have the banks in a completely different regulatory environment than they were in 2008. And in, mm-hmm. in 2001, people go, oh, but you see those companies weren't making any money. And everybody for the past five years, everybody's been saying that, no, these companies are all making money now. But to David's point, they weren't making money. They were, they just had cash flow. And, and so I'm curious, that's, that to me is a coping mechanism on the investor side is to act like I can be calm because I know how things are going to play out. I don't think it's like that at all. Maybe other people have this clear model. Well, there's part. a, I would say there's a general, there's a general problem, which is the, there's a general problem in trying to understand the present, which is the, 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 the sort of perceived need or appropriateness of, of reasoning by analogy. Right. And so, so you see this a lot in like, basically like politics or like world affairs, right. Which is like, you know, every war is world war two, right. And every dictator is Hitler, right. You know, since, since 1945. And by the way, before, before world war two, right. Every war was world war one. Right. And, uh, you know, and so forth and so on. And, and so, yeah. So for people in the current environment, you hear this a lot, which is basically from young people it's 2008 all over again, from slightly older people, it's 2000 all over again. You know, if you talk to people who are in their 60s or 70s, it, you know, they, they, they will be able to index against, you know, 1992, or they might be able to index against 1981, you know, or 1973. And then if you, you know, if you read books, you can go back and you can index against crashes in the, in the 50s and, and then all the way back to the 30s, right? And so, and all the way to 1907, right? And so, so history has many different, right, event, you know, many different things have played out. There have been specifically many different stock market crashes. There have been many different recessions over time of very different patterns. And Stephen, I think to your point, I think the key observation is the mix of factors is different every time. And so the odds that whatever we're going through now is a literal repeat of anything that happened in living memory is very un- unlikely. And in fact, it's it's more likely that not only is this not like the prior two, it's probably unlike anything that has ever happened before, precisely because the mix of factors are different. And yeah, I think that's that's a that's a very, very good cautionary message. And, that, that, and then that relates a lot to, you know, what I point I kind of hit the on the last show, which is like prediction is not really useful. Like it's, it's, there is, there is nobody who can tell you what's going to happen next. Um, and every single economic thing I've ever been through, there have been a lot of highly credentialed experts that have been completely wrong in their predictions. And so I've, I've seen, seen this with my own eyes. And so nobody can tell you that this is going to be a, a major crash. It's going to last for five years. Nobody can tell you that it's going to be over tomorrow. And so, you know, and as I mentioned this last time, but like a lot of this, a lot of the thinking here should be less prediction based, should be more scenario based and contingency planning based. And, and basically like, you know, really wrapping your head around the idea, like you can't forecast the future, but you have to be ready for the different scenarios. And that's a, like a super key coping mechanism is just this, you know, it's not going to be over in a month and it's not going to be over in a year. 
but it is going to be over. And so the whole idea of just planning for it to end, but not know when versus thinking that there's some timeline. Like I've heard a bunch of people like, well, as soon as the Fed gets to 4% or as soon as this, like there are these specific triggers that some people have in models that sort of indicate when the whole thing is going to end. And that isn't how it's going to go. And so to to David's point about burn, like having a model for how long your cash can go for that's sustainable seems to be the the key thing right now. In In his post, he has sort of like positive, negative, and super positive sort of expectations about how to, and and multiples for how to measure that I think is really a helpful guide. I I wanted to get uh, Dan's take on this too. Dan, you know, you've been, you were an exec at Coinbase, much bigger company. Now you're a founder. And how do you think about it from, you know, the last couple of weeks, but also looking at this like magic eight ball, like what happens down the road for you as a founder, but for also like, for anybody else who's just about, you know, in the stage of like starting something, for me personally, I actually think this is like, it's a great opportunity to be like really aggressive and go for it. But how would you think about it? Yeah, so I, I think having grown up in crypto feels a little weird because for the last 10 years, the rest of the tech industry has had a downturn, but crypto's already in two. You know, right? there were pretty lean times at Coinbase 2014 to 2017. Yeah. And then after the euphoria of 2017, things came down pretty hard in 2018 and 2019. To yeah. point, you know, revenue corrected almost 80%, right? Everything that you're seeing in public markets has so already happened multiple times yep. in crypto. And so I think there was always a mentality that you didn't know, kind of trying to predict the future was, was not going to be a useful exercise. And so... There was always kind of a, okay, how much cash do we have? Like, how long do we, you know, what, what the runway calculator that I think it's like, uh, Y Combinant Paul Graham has is yep. like, are you default red? And that's something that Coinbase even in 2018, 2019 was, was running at board meetings. Like, okay, how, how much cash do we have? And yeah. the ability to fundraise in, in 2019 for a crypto company, no one was interested. And then obviously the, yep. the market got really excited about crypto last year and, when this is back down to where it yeah. was in 2019. And so I think that there's a mentality that crypto people who have been around for a while, they, they've seen these cycles and, and it's kind of interesting to start a habit applied. Does it just mean you have thicker skin now to deal with this? How, how do you think about it as you're starting a company now? Well, I, I mean, a lot of the advice that everyone's been sharing is, is pretty practical. I mean, ultimately can't, don't have enough cash to survive as a company mm-hmm. uh, with theories seed or series d mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter. And, and so i think i'm friends with a lot of founders at, at different stages and, and what's interesting is a lot of the the later stage founders that i know they haven't done layoffs yet there's a variety of reasons mm-hmm. you know it's a hard thing to do it's uh somewhat you know embarrassing feeling or you know and obviously the ways they care about but the reality is, is like if you have to do that part thing, you should do it as soon as possible. Just do it. Extend your runway as possible. Now, obviously, if you're in a more early stage, all the things that have been said about, you know, prices for rounds and, and things like that. But ultimately, I think people need to kind of figure out, okay, what do I need to do? And, you know, in the case of crypto, I, I think we could be in a crypto market that's sideways for a while. And so then it's, okay, what, what do I want to accomplish over the next two or three years and then try to make runway that might've been originally planned for a year or 18. 
So but we, we're going to talk spend a lot more time with Dan on crypto, you know, just a little bit too, because yeah. I think that's what it's been quite the eventful week there. Yep. But I want to kind of maybe change perspective because we've been talking about tough decisions by founders. And a lot of people are going to be watching this and listening to this are not founders. They work at these companies. And it, it's, you know, it, it's an understatement to say that a lot of people who are very anxious, who are afraid, you know, maybe for the jobs or maybe for, hey, what's going to happen? You know, maybe the price, you know, what's going to, what is the price of the options that I got at? Is it actually worth so much? You know, the RSUs, you know, or just kind of general uncertainty. And, but one question for the group, maybe I'll start with Elad over there and then kind of go around. You know, when you talk to an employee, right? Like maybe they're an engineer, a yeah. marketing person, doesn't really matter. Like how should they think about this market, right? Let's say you're in a growth stage company and then maybe working your way backwards to an early stage startup. Like how should how you feel should right think now? about it? Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. I went through this myself in 2001. I was at a startup that grew from 120 to 150 people, and then it shrank to 12 people over five rounds of, of uh, layoffs. And I, mm-hmm. I think I was laid off in like round number three or something. And at the time I was working with this guy, Gopal Rajaram, who's pretty well known in Silicon Valley now. And I remember actually pulling him into my, into like a, a office and walking through the numbers with him in terms of the burn rate of the company and how we were going to be out of cash in six months unless they did a layoff. And therefore, we should anticipate one. And so I think a lot of employees, you know, if the company's open with information, will increasingly have awareness of what's coming just based on the numbers of the company and what's sustainable versus not. And I think as a founder, you want to get ahead of these things and be, you know, proactive about communicating things as as they're about to happen. But as an employee, I think you should also be thinking through three things. I mean, one is obviously you may have very deep loyalty to the company and you may want to contribute in certain ways. And it's, it's worth at some point talking to your manager or to the management team or founders about how you can help um, contribute to making sure that things end up working out. I actually offered to work for free in 2001, in part because of the bleak environment, but in part just because I, you know, I wanted that company to survive. I, I think the other piece of it is, you know, if you do decide to make a move, you should think through, you know, what what business are you going to go to? What is its capital efficiency? What is its burn rate, et cetera? I don't think, again, things are quite at that. Everything is a dire and bleak moment. During every every downturn, there's lots and lots of companies that thrive and they get leaner and they get more capital efficient and they get better at what they do in all sorts of ways. But there also should be companies that are clearly ahead of their skis and don't have clear product market fit or have a very inefficient sales structure or something else that's really going to lead to a bad spot. And you have to kind of figure out which of those companies are you at and then what should you do based on it. It will become a good time to start companies from the perspective of you will have less competition and you know, you'll be able to hire much easier. But the flip of it is it is going to be harder to raise money and you may or may not be in a situation where like where you can take that risk. And so right. you know, it really just comes down to figuring out what makes sense relative to you know, those different factors. You know, one of the comments that we're getting is it's such a dark, gloomy, somber episode. It is, uh, yeah. And, you know, that may, be, you know and that may just be kind of the nature of the world we live in now. But, you know, I think what, maybe I want to go to Mark on this is, uh, Mark, I think one of the comments you've made in the past is if you look at previous downturns, some of the iconic tech companies, are, you know, that we use every single day came from some of those downturns. So, if that is light at the end of the tunnel, if that is, you know, some level of hope to be found, like, what would it be? Well, you know, they say sometimes the light at the end of the tunnel is the oncoming train. Thank you. Oh Thank goodness. you. This was not helpful. <laughs> not helpful at all. Okay. There's that optimism. Right, right, way to go. Okay, let's see. I, I have a bunch of those. I'll, I'll stop at that one. So, yeah, so look, well, so here's the good news. So the good news is it is true that a lot of the best companies are born during downturns or, or actually grow, grow a lot during downturns. And so there, there's many examples. I'll just give you a couple. One was Dell. 
you know, which became the dominant, you know, personal computer company of the 1990s, you know, they, they, they literally started in the teeth of what was a catastrophic, uh, crash in the PC world, uh, hardware world in the, in the late 1980s, you know, it, Intel almost went out of business <laughs> around the time Dell was getting started. Like that's how bad it was. So, you know, that was an example. Google, you know, started at the height of the bubble or whatever we call whatever happened in 1999 bubble or whatever it was, Google started in 99. And, you know, and, and while there was this huge carnage in 2000, 2003, Google grew, you know, very fast through that, you know, Facebook started in 2004 when things were still very dark. And then, you know, obviously did very well. V VMware, you know, probably the single most iconic enterprise software company, you know, of the last you know mm -hmm. 20 years started also, you know, basically they, they came, they started, I think in 99, but also their, their core growth years were 2000 to 2004. So there are lots of examples of this. The, the reason why this is the case, I think is, is a, a couple fold. One is you just, if you have a startup that's funded during a downturn, you, you you're just going to have a lot less competition, right? And, and, and that basically it does two things for you. One is there's, you're competing with your companies for, for talent, right? Which has been one of the big problems the last, you know, 10 years. It's just, it's been hard to hire because so many companies are funded. So many, so many companies are hiring. So. So in a downturn, there are just fewer employers hiring and fewer competitors hiring. And then, and then also the other thing that happens during big booms, which has definitely happened in the last 10 years, um, is that, you know, the, the, the unit economics of many categories really suffer because there's just too much, you know, too much venture money, too much growth money, too much public money, you know, funding 30 companies per category. The companies are all chasing revenue growth. You know, they're all pursuing you know, revenue growth unprofitably. They're all spending way too much on customer acquisition. You know, during a downturn, that, all, that stuff all gets wiped out. That gets normalized. And so... For the surviving companies in a category, their unit economics often get much better. Now, you know, having said all that, again, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be too depressing, but I don't want to be, I don't want to make this sound like this is a panacea or like some sort of magic formula. Like it's not a guarantee, right? That people have a good experience during a downturn. Like the reality is in a downturn, most companies fail. And so the, the, the companies that have these amazing stories like Dell and Google and VMware, you know, they are the exceptions and, and they do have, they, they do go through the hard version of, uh, of, of being a startup. Like they, you know, they go through dark times. They, 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 there's a lot of stress in this. And so it definitely is doing it the hard way, but, but for people who are really determined, right. And, you know, there's always kind of this big question, how many people are doing startups? Cause they like the idea of doing a startup. Because it's a cool and fashionable thing to do or an easy way to make money versus how many people are like really in this to build something and are really willing to gut through pain um, in order to build something great. And for people in that second category environment, you know, downturn environments can 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 have some amazing outcomes. I think there's a there's a really interesting thing that isn't, isn't discussed that much in terms of, you know, to some extent, we've had 20 years of boom time attack. You know, for, at least from my perspective and Mark and others may have a different one. 2008 wasn't really a technology recession. It was really a, a financial services issue. And yeah. while there was a really rough recession in the country, it didn't really impact the technology industry that much. And, you know, I think what that led to is all sorts of drift in terms of what is the purpose of a technology company and what should employees care about or not care about and how many types of kombucha should you have and all the various other aspects of running a company today. And I think that a downturn will break a lot of the sort of fragility that you see in people in terms of, you know, when I got laid off, it was awful. It was really tough, but you know, those sorts of experiences do really drive a different perspective, a different emphasis on what's important. And I think at the company level for certain companies, this is the moment where you can really reforge the purpose of the company and the emphasis of the company and how you win in the market and everything else. And so, you know, to yeah. some extent, it could also be a, a moment of change in all sorts of ways and that, you know, aren't discussed yeah. that much. One of the things I think that is super interesting and optimistic now, too, is that we're in an era where, you know, if you go back to 2000, 2001, like there were a bunch of companies that did software 
and a bunch of companies that made things and had no interest in software at all. Like they, and, but now, you know, Mark software eat the world essay, what we are there now. And so everything cares about software. And so, yeah. especially in the enterprise space, you know, no matter what happens over the next few years, if things take off all of a sudden and become great, then people are going to need software to manage all that. And if things get really, really difficult, then people are going to look to software to automate software, to improve the situation. The supply chain is a giant software problem. Like all of these things are software issues. So there's, mm -hmm. there is this core demand for software to get us to the other side of whatever this is and whether it's short or long term. And I think that is one of the, the complex systems variables that's incredibly different now. Because what happened, say, in 2001 was a whole bunch of people just went, well, this is why software is stupid. And now I could go back to my analog world. Yeah. And, and, I, I, and I think that, that there's a, a real possibility that, you know, those in the enterprise software space, which is where I think about a lot, are, you know, they're, they're going to see a lot of interest if they can attack the problems that really matter to working through whatever it is we're in and for however long it is. Yeah, I was just going to say, as bad as it feels right now, like, especially in your world, Stephen, the enterprise side, like business performance is still really good. And yeah, yeah. relative to yeah. previous downturns, the business models are way better. Like subscription-based business models, multi-tenant software, consumption-based billing, like these are all like really, really, really strong businesses. And yes, later stage companies and public companies may have tilted too much in favor of growth versus efficiency and all that, but they have great business mm -hmm. models. Yeah. The, the counter argument, I, I can't resist. I can't resist. Sorry. The, the counter, the counter argument is never, never underestimate the, uh, ability for an incumbent, uh, big company executive to find a reason to not go after something in technology. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And also this, that works. The funny part about that, Mark, too, is I think it works in the technology companies too, because to David's point about the, the larger companies, one of the first things that they're going to start to do is not look at any place that they're not currently in. Yeah. And so to a lot of point, that makes the opportunity for startups and to the big companies, that's how they get their more, their, their ratios back is by like jettisoning a bunch of stuff. And so you go through these yep. awful, bizarre experiences where all these people appear to get laid off, but really just got reassigned to other parts of the company. Yep. And, and so I, I, it is totally like that. Like, uh, it, it's a very real dynamic where even the big software companies will forget what they're there to do. No, totally. I feel like as, you know, for founders, I really think this is a, this is a good time as, as hard as it sounds right now and fundraising might be hard and all of that. But if you're able to stick through this period, I really do think this is a great time to be a founder, especially if you, you have something that's like really interesting. You can pull it together with like your team of people who can work on this. And as Mark said, like grit through the hard problems. I really think this is a good space because to Stephen's point, I think the big companies, this is a time when they're like consolidating into their core yeah. business, not really looking at the adjacent markets or things yeah. that might be a 20% project somewhere. Those are not that interesting right now. Yeah, one consistent theme with the Good Time Show is everyone likes to shit on the incumbent large tech, especially Mark and Steven, those two right there. <laughs> okay, so I think, you know, I want to wrap up on this because we have a lot to cover with crypto. Crypto. And uh, so maybe one place to, one thought I would love to get from each one of you on the grid in front of me is if, if you're a founder, asp aspiring founder, current founder, 
uh, listening to this tonight or, you know, the days and weeks to come, what is one thing that you'd want them to, you know, we want to leave them with? And maybe like, David, we'll start with you. Yeah, I would no say question. like, start, start the scenario planning exercise, right? Like, yeah, it, because that, that's what will make it tangible. And to Stephen's point earlier, you know, all you can do is in such a period of uncertainty is start to have various scenarios that you can plan around so you can make business decisions as they come along. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And in fact, you know, I think that's kind of the conversation I had a lot of, you know, the founders oh, that I've been working with and I know a lot of other firms have had to, which is, hey, you know, what's your burn? What's your runway? And, you know, if that runway is like below 24 months or so, we should have a conversation. I know that's been happening pretty much every firm and mm-hmm. you know, every set of founders. Okay, Eli, one thing for founders. If you're, if you're an early stage company, all you should be focused on is finding product market fit and not fight, fighting with your co-founder. If you're a late stage company, you should be managing cash and figuring out your runway. And if it makes sense to eventually sell, you should do that now. Wait a minute, is that always true? Like, is there ever a good time to kind of be like, I don't know, bickering with your co-founder? There, there never is, but, you know, those are the two things that blow up early stage companies. Back before every company coming out of YC got funding immediately kind of thing. I, I, I think it was Paul Graham used to say that something like 30% of companies would die before they got out of YC. And you'd see these teams sort of reform and restart because so many of them would die. And so actually one of the biggest indicators in some sense of, you know, good times perhaps being or really good is that all the YC companies got funded every batch. Mm-hmm. How could hundreds of companies get funded every batch? You know, there should be some bad companies, right? Right. That's true. And, and in fact, and in fact, there are. Well, we make it. Figure out ways to increase runway. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Can't, can't dispute that. Steven? I would, I still would say make sure to not stop innovating and to not sort of collapse on yourself and to just keep finding new things to do. But think hard about creating a new product line in this environment where the customer acquisition costs are really going to kill you if you're trying to spread yourself too thin on a whole new thing. The Web3 might be able to help you there, but I'll, I'll stop myself. Um, okay, Mark, I, I'll get my Web3 plugs in later. But, but Mark, definitely last but not least. Yeah, so don't predict. Don't predict. Don't listen to predictions. Scenario plan, contingency plan. Don't let anybody tell you they know what's going to happen. And then, yeah, look, runway, runway, runway. I'm just going to repeat it three, three more times. You know... In the scenario in which things get dark, almost every company wishes later that they had elongated their runway. They almost wish they had done things. You know, it, 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 we're in that point. We're in that point. We're in the point. We're in the point where people are saying, well, we're not going to increase our burn rate. Right. And it's like, you know, yep. tiny, tiny little applause. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, you know, we're going to keep the kombucha. We're going to keep the kombucha bar. We're going to keep the masseuse. Right. We're going to keep the gourmet vegan chef. Like we're going to keep like everything we have. We're just not going to increase any of it. It's like, Who that's not, you know, okay, I, I don't know. That, that seems like a made up thing. I don't think anybody's <laughs> ever actually had a masseuse. That seems like a made up fantasy. Google, Google had them. Google, Google way had masseuses. <laughs> no question. In the end, Tony Fidel's book, uh, it's, it's after 11. Tony, Tony's book has a whole chapter called Fuck the Massages. Oh, wow. wow. That's crazy. Okay. Yeah. You know, Stephen, I think someday so, we should do a separate episode on this, on yep. like just the books that you recommend, because Build has been great, Play Nice but Win has been great, yeah. total segue, but yeah, Mark, go on. Yeah, so look, it, it, runway, 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 like if, if your last round, you know, so I think Stephen said it early on, if you're, Eli said it, if, if your last round was 100 times ARR or whatever, 
has been happening. Like you're not clearing the post. You're not raising another round that's going to clear that post anytime soon. Like that's not going to happen with, you know, only very rare exceptions, pro- probably deals that are already underway. And so r- runway is, is if the negative scenarios unfold, r- runway is going to be critical. Stay, staying alive becomes the order of the day. And, and, and it's the, the old VCs would say cash is more important than your mother. And so keep the, you know, keep, Keep, keep runway. And, and at some point, like, you know, hard looks at cost structure, hard looks at exactly what's required, you know, team, team size, composition, and then all these, all these other, like the level of inventiveness in the last 10 years that companies have found to spend money is just, and like, it, it, you know, it may be time to go to a little bit more of a Spartan mode of existence here, you know, to, 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 to build for a long-term survival and success rather than short-term say get yep. creature comforts and so it may be time to get out the, get out the, get out the sharp pencils, put on the eye shades and start to really rethink how you spend money. Okay. Batten on the hatches, think about runway, find product market fit, don't fight with your co-founder and no, no massages. No massages. No massages. Oh, that seems. But also, I, yeah. If you reach, if you reach like this, you, you, it's two advantages. You, you get to stretch your shoulders, which is good for RSI. And then you can also give yourself a massage. This is going to become a, I just want this to become an internet meme, like right here. Like, you know, there we go. Right there. Uh, right there. Uh, I can't yeah. tell you how good this feels. Uh, I, I okay, think we need to get Mark off camera. Okay, Moving, <laughs> changing gears, changing gears. Yeah. And, you know, I really wanted to have Dan on for this part of the conversation. So, you know, outside of it being kind of like a really, you know, down, depressing week, just over on the market and yeah. a lot of late startups, yeah. it has been a dramatic week in the, the world of crypto. Yep. And... Uh, I think maybe we should quickly summarize what happened there. Mm-hmm. But the reason I want to have Dan in is because I think for a lot of people you know, who are new to crypto, I don't think they've seen this before. Yeah. And, you know, and one, one thing I really love about Dan is Dan's actually been here yep. for many years. Yep. You know, he's seen it all. He's seen all the cycles. He has all the scars and, you know, to prove it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so that, so maybe, you know, maybe we can quickly summarize for us what happened this, in the last, the, week the, the last so. seven days in crypto. Yep. Sure. So I don't think getting into the specifics of any one asset is productive as much as there was a high profile top 10 crypto asset that imploded and that had a knock on effect to Bitcoin and Bitcoin for better, for worse, anytime the price moves to Bitcoin, it's going to impact every other asset in the space. And so you had a, I think it was a 25% correction in a very short period of time for the price of Bitcoin, which is already down from the highs of December of last year. And I think a lot of people for the first time in a while are now saying, oh, okay, maybe this is actually a crypto winter. For those who are maybe less familiar with those terms, it's kind of a crypto speak term for essentially, essentially the down part in the cycle. And I think I had mentioned before, while tech had a great, you know, 10, 20 year run, crypto has had these kind of boom bust cycles. And, and there were even a couple before I even got it to 14. I actually joined Coinbase thinking that it was kind of an up and to the right company only to find out I was joining at the bottom or you know, kind of coming down off the 2013. And so we, we then kind of had this sideways market where really there was no growth in the industry yeah. at all. And a lot of companies either, you know, couldn't raise funding, pivoted, sold, shut down and one of the things that I think people don't appreciate is, is Coinbase just stuck with doing what it had been doing in the, in the previous cycle, which was allowing people to easily buy and sell Bitcoin. And we added Ethereum to the platform. And then 2017, one of the reasons 
the company was able to take off is it's just one of the few companies left standing. You know, Mm -hmm. obviously there was product and a whole bunch of things, but the reality was the market took off and most of our competitors, when I joined in 2014, had stopped. Like a bunch of them had pivoted to enterprise blockchains, other ones completely out of crypto. And And how did it feel inside Coinbase, right? Because you're there, you know, I mean, you know, all of you are kind of had storied tech careers mm-hmm. and, you know, the world seems to be falling apart. People are leaving, obviously, and, you know, people even question, is crypto going to be a thing? How would it feel emotionally for you to kind of, you know, and for you and I think a lot of other people in crypto kind of stuck it, like, how did it feel for you doing those years? That was brutal. I mean, I, I got close to leaving, and and I think part of it was we felt really helpless because you, you, the, the core of the business is people are buying and selling. So you actually have to get people to part with their money and they have to want to buy time was mm-hmm. just Bitcoin. And if the price isn't moving around, it, it's really, really hard to convince people who are already, are already not convinced about Bitcoin to uh, buy into mm-hmm. it. And obviously it was an earlier life stage of Bitcoin. So I think the last winter was a little shorter, but I, I wouldn't anticipate whether or not we are in a winter now. It, it could be longer, shorter. I think what was helpful was Brian and Fred were both very committed to the mission company. So mm-hmm. I don't think we got distracted with a bunch of kind of the shiny bright objects that some of the other companies in the space were, were focused on. So mm-hmm. we need to grow the business in terms of adding new countries, like allowing people in Europe and, and overseas to be able to buy Bitcoin. We added Ethereum. But uh, I mean, I joined as employee 20 in 2014. By the end of the year, we were, I think, 60 or 70 employees. By the end of 2015, almost 50% of those people have left, right? Like they, wow. they just kind of set things over. And so, yeah, we, we backfilled, but the growth was pretty slow. A lot of people left. It, it, and I, I remember we finished 2016 kind of like an up, like a little bit mm-hmm. up. And we thought it was just absolutely amazing. And in the next year, we had 100x revenue growth. And that had, again, nothing to really do with what the company was doing. It was just the, the market. And I think that, you know, I, I left Coinbase in 2019, so I wasn't there for the full winter this last time, but I think roughly similar. But I think that the key thing for a company like Coinbase and, and other companies in the space who had survived, you know, was they had already seen a winter. So you had all mm-hmm. these kind of like employees kind of be like, okay, let me, let me show you how you get through this, this part. Yeah, there's a great meme, right? Like, you know, with the noose around your neck, you know, well, there's a, you know, this famous movie meme saying like it's first time. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, I read first time, and I had a lot, a lot's been through it, right? So, share his thoughts. We have established on the show that Elard is old today. I think, right? <laughs> I've lived through everything I, I, like that. I have, a, I have a question actually. So, if you look at a lot of crypto cycles historically, people said that they basically correlated their block rewards on Bitcoin dropping in half, and that's when you'd have like supply demand kick in, the the price of Bitcoin would run, and then. You'd move it to Ethereum and Ethereum would run and then you'd move into the altcoins and the altcoins would run. It was kind of like the traditional view of it. And if you look at this cycle, the last halving was in 2020. And then usually there's like a four or five quarter period and then everything starts to drop and then you end up in a winner and everything goes sideways for a while. That's, that's kind of been the traditional pattern. And just through coincidence, that timing is exactly roughly now. I was just looking at sort of a predictive chart on it from like a year ago that was predicting that we'd hit the crypto winner right about now. Do you think it's purely like shifts happening more around the interest rate environment and tech selling off and therefore crypto selling off is effectively a tech asset? Or do you think it has anything to do with that broader sort of supply demand curve? Like, is that still relevant or was it ever? Yeah. I mean, look, 
I a lot of credible people that I think are, you know, pretty smart. And in Mark's point, predictions are always hard, but a lot of people point out that the happening is the closest thing crypto has to monetary policy, right? You have the Bitcoiners who are like, they don't like it said, but the reality is Bitcoin at an algorithmic level has a monetary policy every so often it roughly correlates with every four The new Bitcoin issued to the network every 10 minutes cuts in half. Mm-hmm. And so if, if price is stable and you believe that people who are mining Bitcoin are really trying to sell it, then it's a, it's a relatively plausible theory that you're effectively reducing the amount of new supply. So therefore any of the existing buy demand, if the price is a bit flat, is going to increase the price. I think what's a little different now, and you definitely saw a lot of this last year is, so in the previous cycle, Ethereum was the new kid on the block and, and Bitcoin was there. And, and obviously Bitcoin in 2017 had that huge run up towards the end of the year time mm-hmm. it's in fathomable well, 20,000, which now, you know, it hits 20,000. Now people will be out like that. So a little, little perspective, but I think the, the thing about crypto and, you know, you have the term web three, it's, it's a lot bigger of a category in both that you have the entire Ethereum ecosystem, you have Solana and a whole bunch of other kind of like L1 chains, but then you have NFTs, right? It's its own whole category. And so I think I'm curious how this will play out. I, I think that the simplest answer is, hey, it's all correlated. It's still a relatively kind of immature, but growing market. So if the kind of major assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum are a little down and everything else. Down. But if you want to say this time it's different, I think, you know, the amount of just like entrepreneurial and creativity that's happening with things like NFTs or, or music NFTs, like there's just all these kind of new things that for the last, I don't know, decade, we really have only just had these kind of like money assets and, and yeah, mm-hmm. NFTs were a thing in 2017, but they were much, much smaller. Whereas I think now you, you kind of see the amount of entrepreneurial talent coming into the space, you know, someone working in crypto and web three, like I'm just yeah. away by the interest from engineers working at more traditional tech that are still interested, right? Like, I don't yep. think that the price, maybe that changes in a couple of months, but right now it's like people are still fired up about building stuff on this kind of- Why do you think that is, Dan? And we've definitely seen that too. And I think Shriram talks about it a lot on the web two to web three talent migration, but- Pretty much my day. Right. But why do you think that is? Like, is it because it's like new and shiny? Is it because, you know, somehow they see that this is the future? Like, what do you think's going on? Well, look, I think, you know, the intellectually honest answer is anytime people are making a lot of money, it's going to attract attention. And so then people yep. kind of say, hey, why can't I participate in that? But I think at a fundamental level, and if you can kind of get past some of the price headlines noise, I think it's it's a greenfield opportunity for people to build it. Whereas in mobile, which is a much more mature category, we're, what, 14, 15 years into that deployment S-curve and you come up with an interesting new feature for a mobile app and all of the incumbents had a clone within a few months, right? Yep, Whereas, yep. For example, Facebook had this big crypto effort, tons of publicity, a thousand people working on it, and they couldn't get it launched. And, and it's not for the talent of the people working. It's actually more structurally, I think a lot of big companies have a very hard time wrapping around the complexity of crypto mm-hmm. because it is a part of technology that is very in, entwined with regulation. And not local yeah. regulation like Uber, Airbnb, like federal regulators, people who federal actually reg- do it. And so I yep. think that traditionally a lot of tech companies have shy away from those areas. And so yep. when you're dealing with kind of the wild west of, of permissionless public blockchain, when you get to the, the finish line, you're ready to go to launch something, all of a sudden 
you know, the legal compliance people at some of these larger companies were like, hold on, like, we need to make sure we get buy-in. Whereas if yeah. you're a crypto native firm, like you've never known anything different there, yeah. And so yep. I, I like to think that every time I see this, and, and I remember when I was at Coinbase, when Facebook was announcing this, and there were some people being like, oh my goodness, they're going to come in and they're just going to take over the entire market. I, my opinion was just like, if, if, you, if you're not 100% all in on crypto, it's very hard to double. And yep. I think so far that that's turned out to be the case. I think we mm-hmm. saw even a lot of here, you know, when, when there was a lot of interest in NFTs in Web3, they, they floated the idea of doing something in NFTs with their user bases and, and, and people kind of freaked out. Whereas yep. it hasn't stopped entrepreneurs from building a crypto native game on chain or, or, you know, building new, new things that just from the ground up. Yeah, I think this is probably my favorite topic, right? Like, I think almost every day I get a DM or I talk to somebody who's moving to like yeah. a bank company or a classic mobile app to Web3. I think I see a few reasons for why this is happening. I think the biggest part is actually not the money. It's actually not because I see people getting rich. It's because it's just more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like greenfield technology. It feels like something that it, you're, you have to go learn. Yeah. It's very new. Yeah. The systems have not been design yep. and how, how often can uh, how, how many times can you go write a react app that talks to a mysql backend and it's just more fun and i i think with the discussion in in twitter in the press just misses this of mm-hmm. how much fun it is to go design a token mm-hmm. to go you know figure out you know all the trade-offs between what change to use and i think that's just so motivating for builders of work i think that's number one mm-hmm. i think number two is there's almost this philosophical angle to yeah where people just don't want to live in a world where power is centralized, you know, in a few companies. This is not the internet we signed up for. This is not what even Web2 was supposed to be about. And we have wound up here and, you know, and all of our careers have benefited from these companies, but this is not what people signed up for. And I think there's kind of like a philosophical push towards maybe even like a populist bent to say, hey, this let's give power back to the people. And that comes up a lot. And, And not in sense of like, hey, we don't want censorship. We don't want moderation. There is definitely a lot of that. But more in terms of, I want something which is permissionless. If mm-hmm. I want to go yeah. build an app, I want to go build a client, yep. it should be like building on email. Like if mm-hmm. I have to go, you know, uh, Arthi knows this. When I get really bored and I have too much free time, <laughs> uh, I will use Emacs yes. and I will use set up GNUs and connect to Gmail. There's kind of a, a, a hundred different steps that you have to go to to go to this. But I will set it up and Arthi will know that I have too much free time. But the interesting thing about that is you do not need anybody's permission to go do that. You don't need Google's permission. You don't need the inventor of SMTP or IMAP. But if you go think about the Web2 APIs, you don't need Facebook's permission. You don't need Google's permission. You don't need Twitter's permission. And I understand why that happened. But in Web3, the idea of permissionless innovation is powerful. You can again go build on things. And, you know, guess what? You build on something, you go to Etherscan, it's live. And I think that's such a powerful, powerful thing. So, I think all of these is the content I have every day. Yeah. And to be honest, I haven't seen them stop. You know, the last week, look, prices are down and, you know, it's not a great week for crypto, but I still get the same DMs from, you know, Facebook engineers, Google engineers. I don't see the flow of talent. True. Look, I, I agree with all of that. I think all of that is true, but I do want to call out, you know, Dan, like, I really appreciate your intellectually honest take, like that one that you just started out, which is, it's hard to not look around and see how much wealth has been generated in the world of crypto and for people to not get attracted to that and uh, think, oh, maybe I should go give it a shot. I want to see what's out there. Especially if you're a, you know, you're an engineer, Web2 company, you've done reasonably well, you look around, 
some peer of yours has like jumped into crypto like a couple years before you. It's just, you know, way wealthier, orders of magnitude wealthier. It's really hard to not get tempted by that. So I do think that's that's a reason too. But I will say, having seen how the last week has been, and this might be, you know, this person's first crypto winter. So this might actually be like this true test of whether you really want to stick it out and go through this or to what uh, you had said, Dan, earlier on, you know, Coinbase having gone through, you know, two crypto winters and people just being like, I think I'm done. I just want to leave. And, you know, is this a time where you kind of cut your losses and cut and run because this is just really not meant for you. So we'll see how it shapes up in the next few weeks, months, years, whatever uh, happens here. Well, one thing I would say is, so in, in 2014, we definitely had what I think were kind of opportunists, people who showed up to Coinbase. It was a hot yeah. company. You know, crypto, Bitcoin at the time was very, very trendy. And those were most of the people who left during that kind yeah. of sideways period. What you ended up left with were the people who actually cared about Bitcoin, right? They, the, the types of people who bought into the Ethereum presale because they thought it was cool. And so you had a very nerdy culture. And I mean, there's so many people from that era of Coinbase who've gone on to do, you know, Antonio at DX, Olaf started Polychain. <laughs> Olaf, so he's the first player at Coinbase. He was Lumberjack prior to Coinbase. And, and oh, there are a million Olaf stories. But Olaf leaves in the summer of 2016 and he says, I'm going to start a crypto hedge fund. And I just remember <laughs> saying to the last time, saying, oh, your qualifications are Lumberjack. And first employee at Coinbase, <laughs> what do you know about running a hedge fund? And he's yeah. able to kind of raise, and it wasn't a big raise. Of time. I want to say it was $10 million or something, something small, but he raises in the fall of 2016 and invests a bunch in Ethereum. And obviously 2017 is a very good year. So I, I think that era, the, the types of people who stayed at Coinbase were, were actually there. They, you know, kind of mercenary missionaries, like that yeah, was too. a missionary who actually fundamentally believed in it. And I would say, the last two cycles have generated two generational companies within crypto that are very, very oriented towards people who really were there for the mission. And yep. the, the example from the first cycle that I was there was, was Coinbase, right? It's kind of exchange in the U.S. that, that stuck it out. And then the 2017 cycle, NFTs became a And mm. OpenSea was one of many marketplace companies for NFTs, right? It was a very like kind of, okay, like someone's going to be eBay for NFTs because they're slightly different than crypto trading. And... Most of the other companies just pivoted out. They didn't, they're like, oh, NFTs aren't going to happen. This is not going to be yeah. a thing. It's the persistence for the people who actually care about the, the mission and, and the underlying belief in like, this is going to be a big thing that when the next market picks back up, they look like geniuses. But, yeah. you know, yep. that was in that extended runway and made sure that they can make it through that winter when, yeah, I don't even know what the price of crypto punks got. Crazy, crazy. Open yeah. continue to paint and, and, and ship features and then NFTs become a thing and, and, and then everyone treats them like they're IBM or Microsoft. It's like, well, no, they were a very small company for a real long time in the space. Yeah. So ask me, like, is, is San Francisco and the Bay Area still relevant given COVID and all this stuff? And I think it's obviously like incredibly relevant. And I kind of, you know, I often think that the Bay Area is now the tech epicenter, but it's not the frontier. And the frontier is really working in Web3, wherever you are, with, you know, heavy emphasis in the Bay Area and New York and a few other places. You're obviously in LA or, you know, a bunch of people are in LA. And, you know, so one thing is like, I really do think culturally it's the true inheritor of the tech mantle in terms of innovation and openness and trying new things and experimentation and all that stuff. To your point, it's an open sea. I think a lot of people tend to conflate 
what exactly type of company they're, they're working on and what the underlying business model is and therefore what they should be doing. Are they building a protocol? Are they building a marketplace or effectively an index on top of a set of tokens like what Coinbase or OpenS are doing? Are they a SaaS company? And I think depending on which of those three things that you're doing, how you run the company and how you think about what you're doing matters enormously, including cash management, actually. Mm-hmm. Part of that because it uh, impacts your dependency on the market as a, as a whole rising. I think one other sort of thing I've been wondering about recently is if you look at each crypto cycle, the things that do very well financially, that doesn't mean they necessarily sustain, but the things that do very well financially are the concepts or notions that were prevalent in the prior wave, but weren't fully substantiated. Mm-hmm. So 2017, suddenly you had Ethereum and all these opcoins, and it was the first L1s that really mattered, the first layer ones that mattered besides Bitcoin in a real way. But there's all these notions floating around, right? There was ERC721, which became NFTs, and there's all these other things that people are talking about, DAOs, NFTs, a lot of the things that are now hitting now. DeFi was, you know, there's a lot of conversation, but you need other things didn't exist. Yep. And all those things now monetize in this life. And I almost feel like there's all this stuff that was created in the last year or two that hasn't quite become as massive as it will be in the next wave. And maybe that's certain types of layer twos and side chains, or maybe it's, you know, you can kind of come up with a list of the things that haven't gone through the crypto pump and like die cycle or pump and succeed cycle. And yeah. I feel like you can predict it right now in terms of what are the, the, the little things that are super interesting around social or around identity yeah. or some of these concepts. I mean, that is spot on. And I'm going to say this because I think Dan may be too bashful to say this. I think Web3 and social is probably one of the most interesting things happening right now. And and part of the reason I think for that is it's kind of tied to what I spoke about before, Mm -hmm. where it feels like the time is right Mm -hmm. in the zeitgeist, where there's kind of a pushback against, you know, centralized power. There's a pushback against, you know, platforms, you know, uh, having control. And you come in from different philosophical angles, you know. Data ownership. uh, Ownership, you know, know, maybe they're not political aligned with you. But I think for a lot of reasons where you just want sovereignty. And I mean, Dan, you should talk about that. I mean, you spend all of your day thinking about this. But I do think this is the time for Web3 social. So yeah, Dan, I mean, this is kind of your thing. No, no, no. Look, I think Alon's framework is, is spot on is if you were to say, how, how do you kind of find, if you're if you're a founder or someone trying to figure out, should I be joining this your company or not? I think looking for the companies that are trying to do things that are new and, and kind of are crypto native and are uniquely enabled by crypto, things that haven't existed before, those ideas, and it's a, Chris Dixon has a framework for this, they look like a toy. Like everyone makes fun of yeah. them, this is so stupid. But yeah. there was a very high profile article in the New York Times in 2017 that was making fun of crypto kitties. And obviously that would allow us to be incredibly successful. And yeah, crypto kitties was the first version of something that ultimately led to Top Shot. But at the same time, crypto kitties actually was a kind of predecessor to all of these other projects that exist out there today. And so if you actually really want to look for a heuristic is the more someone is dunking on something on Twitter that where they're probably not in crypto, mm-hmm. it's probably worth you understanding what that thing is, especially if it's new and weird from a first principle mm-hmm. standpoint and actually apply a lens as a builder to say, what is this uniquely enabling? Like, what, what thing can I do now with this that I couldn't do before? And I, I think like a good example is um, the, the founder of Vine, Dom Hoffman, mm-hmm. company to Twitter, basically this TikTok. TikTok, so a guy clearly has a lot of creativity, just had a tweet, yeah. I think, um, this week where he said, my, I deployed my first smart contract to Europe 
and what a year this guy's had in terms of his, you know, he created loot, like uh, Blipmap, like all of these different projects. But going back to Hurek's point, he's just been having fun. He like made a Tamagotchi at one point that you could keep alive yeah. and you had to on transaction and they, it was kept alive for some period of time and then it ultimately died. But that wasn't a company. It was just him having fun, remixing some solidity together, putting it out on Twitter. And, and, and I think part of that is the culture of crypto you see on the Twitter that everyone makes fun of is like the GM component of things. It's people not taking themselves too seriously. So yeah. it actually allows them to experiment a little bit more. And I think sometimes Silicon Valley, just given how big things have gotten with tech and kind of tech versus media and government stuff is there is a whole angle of the crypto that is actually just kind of fun. And it, it feels yep. like the early days of web two, or, I mean, I wasn't around in the early days of web, but it just a lot more playful, a lot more like, oh, this is kind of weird and cool. Let me put it up. Yeah, I love that. I am really glad you called it out because for me, at least personally, that was one of the things that really excited me where it's like, it almost feels like we now have this next generation set of suits in Silicon Valley. And then there is the, there is now crypto, which is just this breath of fresh air. Everyone's just like, ha ha, I'm, I'm doing this thing. It's like, it's a fun project. And, and, you know, you can also tell people who are like outside of this circle where they, they, if they don't get it, they're like, oh, that's so dumb. That's so stupid. I can't believe you're spending all your time on this. Oh, like right click and save for the NFTs. And you have this like whole set of people who are just like, you know, trying mm -hmm. to push back on it. But you do see this like crypto community of people who are just doing this because why not? It's just yeah. fun. It's silly. It's goofy. And for the first time in their lives, they can actually like work on something that just because they just want to do it and it's just really fun and i, I love that so. i love it i think you know maybe this is probably the perfect note to end on tonight yeah. because it's fun so crypto is fun so yeah it's fun i i think you know i think with the downturn and everything we don't know like you know none of us can predict we shouldn't predict as mark says but i think it's it's just no, no matter what happens i think for builders this is still a really great opportunity i think to just you know find use the moment to be aggressive to go out and you know, figure out what is it that you want to go build, go have fun in the building process. Because I think the best companies come out of this downturn, no matter when it ends. I don't know if it ends next week or next year, but just, you know, carpe diem this, this day and just like go after it. Love it. I love it. Okay. On that note, carpe diem, have fun, um, <laughs> you know, but know your runway. But I want to thank everybody. I want to thank, especially, you know, first of all, on the crypto side, you know, Dan, and Elad, thank you for sticking around. This is just so much fun. Amazing. Thank you, folks, both. Uh, Elad's really kind of like the you know, grand old statesman of Silicon Valley. <laughs> you know, see it all. And, you know, kind of the person you go to for advice, you know, when you want to see things. And earlier on, just want to also thank everybody else who joined us. You know, David Sinop, Steven, and the one and only Mark for all things. But this was a blast. Yes, it's great. This was super, super fun. And as always, let us know thoughts, comments, hit us up on social Go like, subscribe. Guess you want to see all yeah. of that. But yeah, if you want to find us, you're, we are on YouTube. Subscribe so you'll get notified yeah. on the next episode. And we will also be on all the podcast platforms. Yeah. We'll be on, we'll, we'll be everywhere and on Web3 soon, I think. But until then, we'll be back uh, next week. Have a great time and stay safe. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, folks. Thank you.